you have your Bibles, grab them at this point and uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. If uh, you don't have your own Bible, there should be uh, Bibles kind of scattered in the pew backs in front of you, and you can turn to page 952. Philippians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves uh, today, so I trust that uh, you're working your way towards Philippians chapter 4. We've been in the midst of a sermon series on this wonderful little book of Philippians, and I've entitled the sermon series The Fight for Joy, and we've been looking at a a variety of places from Paul and uh, these Christians there in in this town of Philippi, uh, we've been finding, yeah, I know, we've been finding out sources of joy. So we uh, come to another source of joy, and this one's a little bit uh, different. It's joy in the midst of anxiety. Joy in the midst of anxiety. Chapter 4 of Philippians, and uh, we will work our way through verses 1 through 4. I trust that you are there, so let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we can sing wonderful songs of praise to you. Thank you that we can meditate upon these wonderful truths uh, that you will never let us go. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ in the midst of any circumstance that we find ourselves in, uh, in the good and the bad, we bless your name. We worship you, and uh, as this uh, dear woman has taught us, we want, to, we want to worship you anew in the midst of any circumstance. You are making us into the image of your Son, teaching us how to find joy in you, Jesus, and in you alone in the midst of the good and the bad. And so I pray that you would continue to help us to do that, in particular this morning, as we consider finding joy in the midst of what could otherwise be anxious moments, what could otherwise be difficult circumstances, what would otherwise be uh, circumstances and events in our life that would cause us much worry, much fear, much anxiety. You say, even in the midst of that, we can find joy in our relationship with Jesus Christ and what he has done, and that we can always rejoice in him. And so help us, we pray, to learn how to fight anxiety well. Help us to learn how to fight worry biblically, and help us, as the Apostle Paul models for us here, and as he wants us to to live in our lives, to truly find joy in Jesus in the midst of everything, and make your name known, to make you look good for your glory and for our joy. And so we ask for your presence among us, and God's people said, amen. Amen. So I was reminded uh, this, this week of s- kind of a bad habit that I think those of us who are parents, or maybe those of us who are not parents can also have, uh, but it's, it's this particular scene. I, I'll, I'll paint a scenario for you, and maybe you can, uh, you can identify. Maybe you've been there as a parent, or maybe as a child uh, you've been in this scenario, or maybe some of you teenage girls or boys, if you babysit, you've probably heard this from me. Um, so here's, here's kind of how the scenario goes. It's date night, and mom and dad are getting ready to go on their date, and they have one or two or three little ones. There's a, a newborn, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old, and you're getting yourselves prepared to, to go on a date. You're excited to get away from the munchkins for a while, and uh, you're happy to leave them in the hands of a capable young lady, right, uh, who's come to babysit for you. And the babysitter arrives, and you say, oh, thank you for coming, really appreciate it. Let me just, let me just give you a few reminders, just a few reminders. And then what you proceed to do, I, well, okay, what I proceed to do then is you give them not just a few kind of short, succinct reminders before you leave your precious little munchkins in their hands. Uh, it's not just one or two, but it's about seven or eight or nine short bullet uh, point kind of here's what the, the main things that you need to do while I'm gone. Here's, you know, I've, list, I've given you the list and, and they look and there's like a page or two, right, of, of instructions. But here's like, like, here's the gist. Here's what I want you to remember. Bedtime, 8 o'clock. 
make the, the, make the boy go to bed, uh, go potty before bedtime, right? Feed them no later than six o'clock. Make sure that, you know, you've been there before, or if you're a child, you've been there with your parents doing it, or if you're a, a babysitter, you've been through this barrage, this Point A, point B, point C. Here are the things that I want you to know, the things that are most significant before I leave you, right? And before you have the joy, if it's my kids, you have the joy of babysitting my three little munchkins. So have you, have you ever been there before, maybe as a parent or as a teenager? Um, we have this propensity as we're leaving to kind of make short summary statements. We're about to leave. Here are the things we really want you to know, the things that are most important for emphasis. And oftentimes, it's a repetition of maybe what we've said before. So we've talked with the babysitter. Here are the things. And before we go, oh, remember, boom, boom, boom. Yes, I know. You've said this before, right? But we want to emphasize it. We want to reiterate it because it's significant, Well, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, uh, but this morning you're going to experience that in the Bible because that's uh, precisely kind of the scenario that we find ourselves in chapter four. So remember, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church. He loves this church. He's, uh, he, he, he planted this church. He's their spiritual father. We see that he cares deeply for this church and he's written this compassionate, kind, uh, joy-filled letter to them and he's about to wrap it up. And so in chapter 4, you get the uh, uh, therefore, which is not therefore yet. He has more to say, but he's wrapping it up. And much like a parent who is leaving their children to a babysitter, uh, he goes through what is like a staccato-like uh, bullet point of things that he wants them to remember. Now remember his scenario. What, what was he doing Where was he? He was in Rome. He was under house arrest, and uh, he was awaiting trial before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, in which at the very moment he could be called to trial and lose his life for the sake of Christ. So he wants to see them again, but he doesn't know if he's going to get to. Like a good parent, he says, listen, right? I've reminded you of things. I've said things to you in this letter, but I'm just going to remind you again. I'm going to give you a bullet point list of things that I want you to do that are very, very important. In fact, there are about eight of them in Philippians 1 through 9. Eight bullet point commands. Do this. Remember this. I want you to do this. Just boom, 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 boom. He's giving us these commands as a way of beginning to wrap up his letter. So next week, he will officially wrap up his letter. He'll basically say, hey, thank you. This is a thank you letter. They've given him money. He's a missionary, and he's saying thank you. And his thank you letter is much longer than most missionary thank you letters, right? Uh, And he's going to wrap it up by just saying, hey, thank you. And he's going to teach us about the joy of giving. But before he does that, Boom, 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 boom. Eight commands. And so that's, that's how our sermon's going to go. Uh, these commands were valid for the church back then, and they're valid for us today as Christians. And so we've got essentially eight commands. I've clumped two together. But we're just going to walk through these staccato-like commands. And I think the overarching theme is this. If you were to, to just read through it, it seems somewhat disjointed. You would read these, these nine verses, and you, and you would think he's telling them to do things. But what is there a connection? Is he just rambling on? 
I, I believe there is a connection, and here's, here's my suggestion to you. I think the, connect, the connection of all of these commands is basically he's teaching them, he's giving them points about how to handle situations that could otherwise cause anxiety. Remember, we learned way back in chapter 1 that these Christians were facing opposition from those outside of them. They were maybe losing property. They were maybe even getting thrown in jail. They were being ostracized. They're facing pressure from without, and we get the, the sense, and we're going to see it more clearly, that there's division within. There's a church fight, and people on the outside are after them. And so Paul says, listen, as you face these scenarios both inside and outside, it could cause you to worry. It could cause anxiety in your life. Here's how I want you to combat that. And so he gives eight commands, and the first is found in verse one. Command number one, Paul simply uh, says this. He says, stand firm. This is what I want you to do. Stand firm. Let's read it together. He says, therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. There's the command. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, we've seen this before. If you remember several weeks ago, back in chapter 1, he's, he's told them in the midst of these unbelievers who are causing them trouble, he says, stand firm in your faith. So he's reminding them, listen, people are going to come at you. They're going to oppose you. And as people come against you to harm you, I want you to stand firm in your faith, in your profession of Christ, in your morals, in your obedience. Stand firm. This, this word is essentially used elsewhere in Greek of soldiers who are standing the onslaught of uh, army forces coming to invade them. So picture that as a Christian. The unbelieving world, in a sense, is coming at us. They're coming to get us. And we're soldiers. And what Paul says is, don't retreat, okay? Don't duck, uh, tail, and run, but stand your ground. So let me ask you, who is it or against what do you need to stand firm today? Who is it that is maybe opposing your faith? Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a, a child. Maybe it's a sibling, and they're coming against you because of your faith, because you're a Christian, because you go to church, because you have theological beliefs and you have morals, and they, like an invading army, are coming against you. They want you to, to, to bend a little bit on your morals. They want you to bend a little bit on your beliefs. And Paul says, no, we must stand our ground. We must stand firm. Maybe it's an individual, but maybe, maybe it's just society in general. I don't know if you get this sense or not. I certainly do. Uh, and I'm, I think, relatively young, so to speak. I've not lived that long. But even in my adult years, I sense that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. I don't know if you've noticed that. I, I, I feel it. We are becoming the minorities. We are becoming attacked. And so these words are very, very pertinent to, to us today. We must, we must face our opposition. Maybe it's, maybe it's moral beliefs. Maybe just culture is, is pressing in on our morals as it has to do with sexuality, maybe with marriage, maybe with the, the issue of when, when life begins and they're pressing their ideology upon us. Maybe it's our theological beliefs. Maybe it's our stance to listen, Christ is the only way and the other religions by default are, are not true and maybe they, you're being attacked 
because of that. Maybe it's the existence of hell. Maybe it's the authority of the scripture and its trustworthiness. Whatever it may be, theological or moral, Paul says we must stand firm. Stand firm. And so he moves from conflict that the church and these Christians are facing from outside, and he moves to conflict inside the church. And we see this in chapter 2. Uh, the command, I'll summarize it this way, chapter, uh, verses 2 and 3. He says, help in conflict. Not only do we need to stand firm, but we need to help each other in the midst of conflict. So not only were they getting it from the outside, but apparently things within this little church were not doing well on the inside. We have had a preview of this in chapter 2. If you remember this wonderful section, Paul says, listen, agree in the Lord, be of the same mind, right? Because of your faith in Christ, you need to agree, you need to be humble. Don't press for your own way. Don't push for your own agendas. He tells them in chapter two, but now I think the truth is going to be told and he's going to name names. So does the apostle Paul name names for people who are at conflict in the church? Yes, he does. Here we go. Verses two and three. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind. That's exactly what he said back in chapter 2. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written, whose names are in the book of life. So let me just ask you just a, a quick question. How would you like it if your name were recorded in the Bible for the rest of eternity and people, Christians from here on out, know you as the people who are in the Bible because they're fighting? How would you like that? I, I can only imagine that Euodia and Syntyche, if they, if they can see what's going on down here, which I don't know if they can, but if they could, they're, uh, every time that their names are mentioned, there must be a sense of, you remember back when we were fighting way back then, and you, can you believe that Paul named our names, and, uh, and can you imagine, remember, this is a letter to be read out to the church, and so can you imagine then being this, one woman is sitting here, the other woman is, is sitting way back there because they're butting heads, and the elder gets up and reads this little letter, and they're like, oh, <laughs> Paul named my name in the midst of church and told me to get along with that other lady. Oh boy, I, I hope... I, I thank, thank God that the canon is closed, right? That, that, that there's no more revelation so that you or I couldn't be in, in this scripture. But this is exactly what's going on. Uh, we don't know much about these ladies, but notice the language that Paul uses. I mean, he, these are mature ladies. They have contended by his side. They've worked together with him. They're mature believers. Their name is in the book of life, which is essentially an image that uh, in heaven, in God's presence, there is a book. It's called the book of life in Revelation. And people who are Christians, their name is in it. And people who aren't Christians, their name is not. Now, I don't think God needs the list to remember. It's just a way of letting us know that, listen, this is real. You're a Christian and your name is, is written in heaven and you're going there. But if you are not a Christian, your name is not written there. There's an old hymn that you may be familiar with. And the chorus goes something like this. When the roll is called up yonder, what? I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. So I want to ask you, will you? Will you? When the roll is called up yonder, will you be there? 
You can know for sure today that when the road is called up yonder, that you indeed will be there if you repent of your sin, if you repent of rejecting God's provision of Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your sins, rose from the dead to, to defeat death, to, to give you new life here and eternal life forever. If you place your faith in Christ today, then you can know for sure in that moment there's a heavenly scroll and your name was not there and it is there in that moment if you would do that today. But notice, he, he calls in help. There's these two ladies, and they're fighting, and he urges an unnamed brother to intervene. He, he calls upon this guy, who we don't know. It may be Luke, but we don't know. He says, listen, there's a church fight. These two ladies are not getting along. You go in, and you help them, and that's the second command. We need to help each other in the midst of conflict. And so let me ask a couple questions. Maybe you find yourself and you're like, wow, I'm one of these ladies. I'm Euodia. I'm Syntyche. I'm, I'm, I'm not right with another Christian brother or sister. Maybe in this church. Maybe not in this church. Maybe in another church. The church of Christ. The broader church. And maybe, maybe today the Holy Spirit is, is convicting you that we need to agree in the Lord. We don't have to agree on the issue, but we need to agree to disagree to, to maintain unity in the body and to seek reconciliation for the sake of the gospel. I ran across an interesting story, and I'd just like to read it to you, uh, about an animal in the woods called, well, the grizzly bear. I think you're familiar with the grizzly bear. Hopefully not intimately familiar. You've never met one or had one chase you or anything like that, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and the story goes like this. It's uh, the, the largest of bears. It can terminate any other life. It's kind of the king of the forest in that sense, right? Um, but interestingly enough, there's one animal, according to my source, that this grizzly bear will not attack. Uh, it, won't, it won't impede it. It's even allowed it to share its own meal rather than attacking it. Uh, and can you, can you think about what animal that might be? The skunk. The skunk. That would make sense, because I don't know about you, but if I'm eating dinner and you swipe a skunk, that's not going to be, that's not going to be real comfortable. Instead of engaging his adversary, uh, he just decides to coexist with him because he doesn't want to create a stink. And in a sense, that w- that's what Paul is telling these two ladies. Listen, you may not disagree, you, you know, you may be at odds with one another, but because of your faith in Christ, just, uh, just get, get along, rather than creating a huge stink in the church. So he said, he says, stand firm, help in conflict. And then the third one comes in, in verse four. And it's simply this, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. This is what he says in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord. And here's a, a key word, sometimes. Wait, no, that's not what it says, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And so the third command is simply to find joy in Jesus. So he's, he said there's conflict without and there's conflict within, but as you deal with that conflict, you should not worry, but you should rejoice. He moves to our inner response to these anxiety-producing opposition, both inside and outside the church, and he essentially says, in any circumstance, always it means always, right? He says in any circumstance, if you're a Christian, you have a source of joy, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so let me ask myself a question and you a question. When life is hard, when it gets difficult, when you get the phone call from the doctor that is unexpected or maybe even expected and the doctor does not say what you want to hear, when you get that phone call from your sibling or maybe from your child and 
It's bad news. When the kids are just horrible that day and your mood is foul and you're looking for joy, where do you go? Where do you go? Where does Paul go when he's sitting in a Roman cell, he's handcuffed day and night to a Roman prisoner and he's about to possibly die? Where does he go for joy? He goes to Jesus because our joy in Jesus is not contingent upon what happens today or what happens tomorrow, what happens to our flesh, what somebody does to us or what we do to them. Our joy in Jesus is forever because our relationship with him is unchanging, right? And so he says, go find joy in Jesus. So where do you find it, friend? Command number four. He says, be gentle to all. Be gentle to all. He moves from this internal response to anxiety to how we respond to other people in the midst of anxiety. So let me ask you a question. When life is hard, when you're anxious, when you're prone to worry, when there's a circumstance that you're, you're nervous about and, and your stomach has butterflies, how then do you treat other people around you? How do you treat the people who are closest to you, that you love, that you care for? How do you treat the people that you don't know at all and you just pass them in the grocery store, which doesn't happen much here in Cisna, but if you go to the grocery store somewhere else, you might just pass someone you don't know. Or what about your enemies? What about those who are maybe causing that problem for you? How do you treat them? Well, Paul tells us not only to rejoice in Jesus internally, but to be gentle to people outside. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all people. The Lord is near. I I think the connection is this. Because the Lord is near, if people are giving you grief, if they're sinning against you, when Jesus returns, all will be made well. Jesus, when he returns, comes to judge sin. If they're an unbeliever, there will be judgment. If they're a Christian, their judgment has been taken by the cross of Christ. Either way, we don't have to respond to them in revenge or seeking their ill will, but we can trust when Christ returns that he's the just judge and that it will be taken care of. So let me ask you and I another hard question. How do we respond when times are hard to the people around us? I find when I'm under stress or when I'm I'm anxious about something, when the day is not so good, that I am the most selfish, the most negative, the most harsh, the most inconsiderate. And that's just the people that I love and know, my wife and my kids, right? What about the people who are maybe causing that? How then do you respond to those around you in anxious circumstances? Paul says, we can rejoice in the Lord and we can be gentle. It essentially means, it essentially means not seeking revenge, not being harsh, being respectful and kind, and being patient with everyone. That's, that's what it means. Moving on from that, we see a couple other commands. I've, I've put them together because they fit together. Commands five and six, Paul says, don't worry, be prayerful. Don't worry about anything, but be prayerful. Now he addresses our response to anxiety as it relates to God. So we're anxious. Things are difficult. Internally, we can rejoice, right? We can rejoice and find joy in our heart. We can treat other people gently. But then as it comes to God, what should we do when times are hard? How how do we relate to God then? Well, he says, don't worry about it, but go to God in prayer, verses six and seven. He says, do not be anxious about anything, anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, 
By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the grace of, excuse me, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a command followed by a promise. He says essentially this. He says you have two choices when things are hard. You can worry, and you can be anxious, and you can fret, or you can pray. But you can't do both. So what are you going to do? Are you going to pray, or are you going to be anxious? Are you going to be anxious, or are you going to pray? He says the antidote to anxiety, the alternative to anxiety, is prayer. That's what he says. Pray. Maybe you've heard the good old song from the, I think, 80s, maybe 90s. Bob Marley's philosophy on this is a little different than the Bible's. What does Bob Marley say about worry? You know. Don't worry. Right. Be happy, right? Okay, I wish it was that easy, right? But in a similar vein, God says, listen, no, don't just be happy. Come to me. <laughs> Pray to me in the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. It'll protect you from worry. And so, which do you do more when things get hard? Do you worry more or do you pray more? Do you find yourself on your knees or do you find yourself on your computer or talking about the possibilities of what could be? Or do you find the peace of God that passes all understanding in prayer? He says, don't worry, don't worry. Be prayerful. Command number seven. He just keeps on going. Command, command, command. It's found in verse eight. He says, Put truth in your mind. Put truth in your mind. Verse 8, he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, Paul, this is about your third or fourth finally. Are you going to wrap up soon? That's what they, they say when we preach, right? Well, that's what we preachers do. Finally, not really, but finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such Things. So why does Paul say this? Uh, my humble opinion is I think Paul says this because he's just told them not to worry, but to pray. But then what should we set our mind upon? So let me ask you this. When you're worried, when you're concerned about something, when, when there's a scenario that could cause anxiety, where does your mind go? Where does it go? Well, if you're like me, and I'm a, I have been a pro at, at worrying from time to time, uh, I go to the what ifs. I go to the what could be's. I go to the what might happen if. And so instead of thinking upon what is reality, instead of thinking, as Paul says, on what is true about my scenario, and what is true about my scenario may be hard and bad and difficult. That's, that's fine. But he says, think about what is true and helpful and set your mind on things that are uh, worthy to be thought about, not, well, is this really going to happen? Are they, how are they going to respond? What's going to happen if this happens? What, what if? Do you, and I think you, you see where I'm coming from. I ran into an interesting stat. There was a, a leading American university, uh, university that they did a study on the things that people worry about. And uh, so this is kind of how the study went. They discovered in their little sample that 40% of things that their group worried about never happened. So the things that we worry about, 40%, according to you know, this, this study, never happen. But then 30% are things that they worry about the past. And so by definition, worrying about things in the past, they're in the past, right? So they never happen. Things are in the past. 12%, uh, according to the study, said they studied about uh, needlessly about their health. So they're concerned about their health, but there was really no evidence to support them being concerned about their health. Are you adding up the numbers? 10% worry about what they considered petty issues, things that were 
uh, at least petty in their opinion, although maybe significant to them. And then they uh, basically summarized that 8% of their concerns were, in a sense, legitimate, things that uh, could very well happen. And so if you do the math, depending upon what you want to include, that's anywhere from, uh, let's see, uh, 82 to 92% of worry, according to this study, is wasted energy, mental energy that we expend. And I think that's why Paul says this. He says, instead of worrying, think about what is true and helpful, Okay. And then the last command, verse, verse 9. He gives us this last command in this little section. And uh, he has said before, put truth into your mind. But now I think he says, we need to put truth into practice. We need to put what we've learned and what we've heard, specifically in these nine verses, but in the whole book. Put them into practice. So he ends his to-do list by saying, apply what you've heard. Verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice. So do it. Paul's saying, anything that I've told you, anything that you've seen in my life, anything that I've told you in this letter or in your time with me, do it. Don't just hear it, but begin to do those things. And then there's another wonderful promise. What's the promise? He says, and the God of peace will be with you. So notice what he said. He said, if we, uh, in verse Eight, if we put truth into our mind that the peace of God will be with us, but if we put truth into practice, the God of peace will be with us. That is, God's very presence will be with us to give us peace. And so we've seen really quickly eight commands, boom, 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 like a parent saying, babysitter, I want you to do this and do this and remember this. This is most important. And that's what Paul has done. He said, this is most important. He's reiterated several things that he's talked about and he's, I think, showed us Uh, giving us a blueprint how to have joy in the midst of anxiety-producing circumstances. So I want to close with an illustration, and then we'll watch a short video and sing a song. But the illustration was uh, very helpful. It's this. It, it likens our response and how Paul tells us to respond to anxiety, to these kind of circumstances, to three objects being dunked in boiling water. So think about that image. There's a pot of boiling water, and we will dunk or throw in three different items. The first item is a carrot. I don't know if you have carrots in your garden. We have carrots in our garden, and we haven't pulled them yet because uh, I don't think it's time. But we will someday, and we may boil them. And so you throw a carrot in this difficult circumstance of boiling water. Secondly, an egg. We all probably do this from time to time. We throw an egg, and uh, we know what happens. And then what about coffee? If you throw some coffee beans in boiling water, what happens? Well, of course, the carrots will do what? You throw carrots in hot water in trying circumstances, and what do they do? They get soft, right? They get soft. Uh, but if you throw eggs into a boiling pot, what happens? The opposite is true. They go hard, right? But what about coffee? That's the interesting one. I love coffee. What, ab- what happens if you throw coffee beans in the boiling pot of water? Well, it, it becomes coffee, something good, and it changes the very circumstance in which the coffee bean is in. And so Paul has essentially given us these three ways to respond to anxiety. So which, how do you respond? Are you like the carrot? You go in and you turn out soft. Paul says to you, stand firm. In the midst of hard circumstances, we, we can go soft. We can renege on our faith in Christ. We can go soft on our morals. We can go soft on our beliefs. But Paul says, be like a carrot. I mean, don't be like a carrot. Don't be like a carrot. Don't go soft. Stand firm. What about an egg? 
Maybe, maybe that's more like how you respond to anxious circumstances. The egg started soft, but in the midst of, uh, of adversity, it gets very hard. It gets hard. Paul says, listen, as you relate to other people in the church and outside of the church, don't go hard. He says to the two ladies, agree in the Lord. And he says, as we, as we relate to, to other people, let your gentleness, your gentleness be known to all. So don't go hard. But he says, be like coffee. He essentially says, be like the coffee beans. Let the, the joy of Christ permeate the circumstance and change the very circumstance that you're in. Be like a coffee bean, he says. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything and set your mind on these things. So, which are you? Which are you? An egg, a carrot, or are you like a coffee bean? Let's pray, and we're going to watch a short video of a Christian of old whose name was Isaac Watts. He was a hymn writer who dealt very much with controversy inside and out, And he struggled with anxiety, but found joy in the midst of it. So we'll watch a short video, and we'll sing the song that he wrote, to which he says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and then notice, and the burden of my heart rolled away.